Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. We talk about Swedish history in a chronological way in English. Right now we're in the 1400s and this is episode 76. My name is Chris. And I am Elsa. Thank you for listening. We hope those of you who listened to our little bonus episode, Tangent Time, all about the Battle of Grunwald, we hope you enjoyed it. It was really fun to branch out a little bit and cover something one step away from the main narrative, but something that was so pivotal to a number of countries' history. Now we're back in Sweden and there's a fair few bits going on. But before getting into that, we will cover our Swedish phrase of the week. Lugn som en filbunke. This is from listener Eva, who is not only our Polish pronunciation checker, but is now a Swedish phrase of the week contributor. So that's really great. And what she's sent us means... Calm as a bowl of sour milk. Now, to give you a bit of context, although I'm not sure how much it actually helps to explain why this is a phrase, but anyway, sour milk, fil or filmjölk, is a common snack in Sweden or a breakfast item. It's a fermented milk product and it's eaten a bit like yogurt, I suppose, in a bowl, maybe with some cereal or berries in it. Yeah, you see it all the time in Sweden, and in the supermarket it's in the same aisle as the yoghurt, which is uh, slightly confusing since it doesn't taste similar at all, and it's technically milk. Yeah, fjölmjölk has quite a particular sour sort of flavour. Anyway, from what I was able to find out in my research, the phrase was first heard in a play from 1845 by Johan Julins, in which one of the characters supposedly says, I am calm, I am calm as a... A bowl of sour milk. The play is a comedy, so it could be that they were just looking for a funny word to use to make the phrase a bit of a joke, and then it stuck. That sounds like it makes sense. And I suppose a bowl of sour milk just sits there doing nothing generally, so in that way it's quite calm, I guess. Um, Anyway, it's a bit of an odd phrase, but it's used quite frequently in Swedish. So thank you so much again for suggesting it, Eva. Uh, Now back to the history. Yes. Last time we saw a bunch of things happen in our regular episode, including some arguing over who should be the new Archbishop of Sweden. Margareta and Erik eventually got their way, going way above the head of the Swedish church leadership, right to the Pope. Their man got the job, despite being a real party-goer and a Dane. Not sure those two normally go together. I suppose they do sometime. Anyway, they definitely did for this guy back in the 1400s. We then saw the Teutonic Knights suffer a devastating defeat at the hands of the alliance between Poland and Lithuania, with almost the entire leadership of the Knights falling in battle. They just about managed to defend their capital, and now both sides are looking for peace. Someone who was at peace, finally, after decades of political, military and economic drama, was the main character for the last ten episodes or so, that being Margareta. She passed on, leaving control of the Kalmar Union to her adopted son, Eric, who perhaps wasn't best suited to the role, but we'll just have to see how that goes on. Maybe his new English wife, Queen Philippa, will be able to keep him in check in some way. 
Regardless, we've lost the dominant figure of Scandinavian politics now, and that vacuum will need to be filled. And actually, this wasn't the only pivotal figure to die in 1412. We didn't have time to tell you last time, but a few months before Margareta passed away, Albert of Mecklenburg died. Oh, wow. He, her major enemy. They died in the same year. He didn't manage to outlive her. He's finally out of the picture, having never recovered from being captured and deposed way back in 1389. He hasn't really been up to too much for the last couple of years, but he was still around. He's never giving up, this old Albert. If you're sad this Albert is gone, then have no fear. His son, or one of his sons, Albert, takes over as Duke of Mecklenburg, becoming Duke Albert V. <laughs> Of course he does, and of course he's called Albert. But to see what happens after these two people leave the stage, let's turn the clock or the calendar back to 1412 as news trickles back to Norway, Sweden and Denmark about the death of Margareta. She died of the plague on her ship in the harbour down in Flensburg after the whole town had been celebrating their return to the Danish kingdom thanks to an arbitration declaring the place should belong to Denmark once more. Well, at least some people were celebrating. We don't really know how the regular plain old folk of Flensburg felt about being dragged into the power games and now war between Denmark and Holstein over the area. But yes, word did make its way back to Scandinavia and it reached a 31-year-old King Eric whilst he's on an inspection tour around the shores of the Öresund Strait. He didn't end this tour, it was uh, probably quite a big undertaking, and he didn't even bother going south, he instead continued on up into Sweden. He travelled up to Lerdusa on the west coast, visited a number of places in the county of Vestergötland before heading east to Stockholm. There was no big public display of loss or grieving, it was just business as usual for him. He had a number of meetings scheduled for his time in Stockholm, and his advisers and counsellors were undoubtedly letting him know on the trip that the death of Margareta was ending up being a bit like what happens when you put some Mentos in a bottle of Coke, if you've uh, seen all those videos on YouTube. Everyone's grievances against Margareta's firm rule over the past few decades came frothing up out of the bottle and spilling all over Eric's desk. These complaints came from people all over the country, and some of it was actually Eric's fault. Yeah, because first of all, he had appointed a non-Swede to run Dalaboy Castle in Dalsland, something the locals did not take too kindly to. After all, the Kalmar Union was supposed to keep these roles for the locals, not encourage the king to bring in foreign rulers to his different domains. But whilst this local dispute is very much local and something Eric can just brush under the carpet, the other type of protest was much more substantial and something he would need all of his adoptive mother's diplomatic ability to prevent from turning into a long-term problem for his rule, and this was all about money and land. Yes, the local people back in Arbuga in Sweden have been grumbling quietly for a while now, but it's probably no coincidence that a very rowdy church meeting is held shortly after Margareta dies. 
At the meeting, they voiced real displeasure at the economic conditions of the kingdom, as well as the fiscal policies of the leaders of the country. There is fierce criticism of Margareta's tax policies expressed in this meeting. Despite Margareta having reformed some taxes to please the nobility and some hated taxes were cancelled, she did add in different new ones at the same time, affecting both the rich and the poor. This isn't exactly great news to get as you travel around the country, and Eric probably sighs as he sees the mountain of letters waiting for him in Stockholm. Other people are trying to take the opportunity to complain as well. He ends up staying in Stockholm for two whole months, trying to dampen criticism of Margareta's policies, mainly when she confiscated land from the nobility and the church to claw back power to the crown. She had probably gone too far, and people were now seeing the opportunity to get some of this back with this new king sitting on the throne without the protective aura of his guardian around him. Of course, he has been king for over a decade now, but everyone knew it was Margareta ruling the union when she was alive. Yeah, so a lot of people see this as the place and time when Eric actually starts ruling because of that. This is a pretty specific and natural policy to criticise. Nobody likes having their things being taken away at the point of a sword or a royal decree. One person who either comes to visit him or at least sends him a letter is a Swedish knight. This knight was married to good old Father Abraham's only daughter, Birgitta, who in turn was the person who stood in for Queen Philippa at the wedding when she was married to Eric, that one in London where neither of them were present. Abraham is, of course, at this point, headless and very much dead after being executed by Eric on what were maybe invented charges of rape. After his execution, Eric had confiscated all of Abraham's property, which, if we remember back to episode 73, was a huge amount of property. So large, in fact, that he was one of, if not the largest landholder in the entire Kalmar Union, and he apparently had more servants than the king himself. He had around 600 properties in total. I mean, entirely logical that Eric would want to take these properties for himself, and entirely logical that Abraham's family would want to keep these properties, even if he was a supposed rapist and not a nice man. So this was a very specific problem related to financial and property matters. This is a very concrete example of Margareta's policy of property confiscation and, due to the history around this political case, an extremely public and controversial case at that. Now, either because he was feeling vulnerable as essentially a new monarch on the throne and noting that he couldn't afford to annoy people in his first couple of weeks in charge, or that he wanted to do things differently, Eric is eventually forced to concede the point to Abraham's family, and Begitta and her husband get their property back. Now, we're not one for mega conspiracy theories, and we don't have any evidence to point the finger at anyone, but this Begitta then dies in a fire very shortly after they get the property back. It's suspicious. Yeah, exactly. But her husband this night isn't killed and keeps the property in question, so maybe it was just a coincidence. It's just incredibly bad timing. 
So perhaps Eric really did learn something from Margareta and her negotiations and skills at diplomacy, because it isn't just this instance that he comes to a, a decent and sensible solution. He actually behaves in a level-headed manner in the next issue in his inbox too. This is another issue to do with property confiscation and castles. It's a really hot topic at this point. A delegation comes to Stockholm from Dalarna, and this is a delegation of farmers. So it isn't a group of politically well-connected knights or councillors, just some plain old farmers. They do own land, though, so they are at least landed farmers, or we should perhaps say they used to own land. Yeah, because that's the main problem. The bailiff or governor of Vesteros Castle, somewhere where I was just uh, two weeks ago, by the way, the town rather than the castle, he had illegally taken many farms in the area for his own, and this was the classic tactic that we saw when Abraham did the same thing down in Smallland and Kalmar. They took land, and Margareta looked the other way, really annoying those who had their property taken away from them. But Eric, once again, moves this governor of Vesteros Castle, a man called Jöns, to another castle about 160 kilometres away. So a classic way of uh, sort of subtly firing someone by just giving them another job a long way away. In the process, he makes this Jöns return the farms and the mining areas to their rightful owners. So that's another problem solved relatively quickly. Yeah, this is looking really, really positive. What was Margareta so worried about when she was writing all those letters asking Erik to behave? This is so far going really well. Historians have said that Eric's actions during these meetings is really well received and brings about a positive sense that an era of cooperation and sensible policies might be about to flourish. He is really seen to want to engage in these legal and financial matters and he actually appoints the Nordic's first ever Chancellor of Legal Matters, a position called Rittare, sort of an early forerunner to the Minister of Justice. That's a pretty cool first for Eric. It really is. This interest in law and creating policy just continues in the next year. Eric proclaims a reform to Margareta's national confiscation policies, a Riftestingstadga. He says that land previously given to the crown and the ownership of the tax farms can be demanded back by the nobility and the church. So land that the crown owned is given back to their previous owners, and the church and nobility can claim back the tax farmers, the people like the Vesteros farmers who had started giving their taxes directly to the monarch instead of to them. So some of these people were now back to giving their money to the local nobility instead of to the king. Is this because Eric is weak and he has to give in to these small and petty claims, or has he realised that the crown had perhaps gained so much power under Margareta that it wasn't worth the hassle trying to keep it? It's better to keep people on side. Perhaps it was causing more problems than he needed right now, or would do in the future, so maybe it was just best to accede to their demands. Either way, it is what he does, and everyone goes away happy. 
Now, removing the bailiff of Vesteros Castle was certainly a good idea, and Eric then had to decide who to replace him with. He chose a man called Jussa Eriksson, and he's someone who will absolutely come back to the story later on, and he's from Denmark, actually, but he's sort of let off because he's married into a Swedish-Norwegian noble family, so he's actually kind of the Kalmar Union personified. So the local people don't seem to be too bothered that a you know, foreigner has been uh, appointed to this Swedish castle. This is another hint at Eric's way of governing, looking at the Kalmar Union as one giant country. In, in some ways he does act locally, but in many ways he does seem to think of it as one union and not look too much at the borders within the union, and especially when appointing people to jobs in Sweden. We're now into 1413 and a number of things happen. Firstly, a plague hits Sweden. Unfortunately, we don't know much more than that, but this is presumably the same plague that killed Margareta the year before. Another thing that happened was the foundation of Skövde in south-central Sweden and Landskrona down in Skåne. Landskrona is all part of the great trading empire Erik wants to develop and is intended on being the residence for English and Dutch traders which are heading to Scandinavia. I wonder if Philippa was involved in any of this work. Her English skills might have come in useful, perhaps. I know I'm always checking the spelling and grammar of English things at work, so maybe she was doing the same, being a, a royal and very high-placed, convenient spell checker. Uh, well, maybe. She would become much, much more than that later on, but more on that in the next episode. But yes, after calming down the nobility and clergy with tax reform, Eric then focused on religious matters. On the 17th of May, the Norwegian National Day, but not at the time, he visits Vardstena Abbey. This wasn't a usual visit, as he actually walks the last 15 kilometers of the trip. The Abbey's own annals writes that he arrived on foot after a long journey and it was a very pious act. The Abbey is also probably particularly pleased that when he's there, he promises that he will help fund the completion of the Abbey's church and build a new Bridgetine Abbey over in Denmark. <laughs> this is pretty insane. He's going on an all-out charm offensive, both politically and now sort of economically and religiously. But I guess at least here it might not be entirely because he wants to be a great and progressive monarch. It's more likely he has a bit of a personal motive too. That's because he orders that a young woman called Marina be allowed to join the Abbey as a nun, even though they didn't have any vacancies at the time. Normally you're supposed to wait until a nun died, but no, Marina went straight in. She also didn't have any of her personal details noted down in the Abbey records either. This is a bit strange, as normally the nuns write down where the new women came from, who their fathers were, and other important information like that. All they have about Marina is that she joined and the king paid her entry fee. This has led historians to speculate that Marina was a mistress of Erik. He did supposedly have a few of those, the so-called friller that hang around a man at the time. So perhaps he bribed the Abbey to get rid of a problem or for this Marina to skip the queue, 
Or perhaps she was really interested in being a nun and just wanted a favor from her lover, you know, getting to skip the queue. What is more suspicious is that two years later, a woman called Christina is granted entry to the abbey, so that's in 1415. This lady is also thought to be an ex-mistress of Eric, and she was granted her place at the abbey after Queen Philippa commanded it. Do you think this Marina and this Christina hung out together? <laughs> Maybe, formed a little club in the abbey. Of ex-king's mistresses. Not a very nunnery thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I've got a feeling nuns were different in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Just a bit. Nuns have changed. Yeah, so perhaps it wasn't really the building of the church and an entirely new abbey that was Eric's main focus. It was more of a way of him to get the church to look the other way when he needs a few personal favours. To talk about something completely different, in the same year, Eric meets with the Dukes of Holstein to try and solve the Schleswig problem. Summarising this quickly, it just makes the problem worse, and now both sides are just waiting for the current five-year ceasefire to run out so they can attack each other again and not be blamed by anyone for breaking the truce. Yeah, this war really isn't going well. Probably because Eric was going around calling himself King of Schleswig and saying that he had no master other than God and the Pope. Quite a different attitude to Holstein there than when he dealt with the grumpy Swedish farmers. Eric certainly had a more black and white view than historians, who struggle to really categorize Schleswig at this point. Is it really Danish? part of Holstein or an independent county or duchy, the likelihood is that it changed all the time and everyone believed something different, so there was never going to be any real consensus. Despite these problems with foreign powers, we, we've seen how Eric was trying to build bridges back home, but sometimes he just can't help himself occasionally and slips back into dodgy old habits. We're now back in Vesteros, actually, and this time it has to do with the church. That's because the bishopric is vacant this time, and the town therefore needs a new religious leader. But just like with the archbishop, Eric wants someone different to the church, and once again, he gets his way, and once again, it's because he goes right to the top, to the Pope. He then ends up appointing someone who was working with him on tax issues to the position, so yeah, the, the church isn't too pleased about this. I mean, this seems like a bit of an overreaction by Eric. Going to the Pope to appoint a regular old bishop feels like an overkill. Surely the negative outweighs the positives here, and the Pope is probably going to start getting tired of having to intervene in local Swedish church disputes all the time. We don't know if this was the case, but it's an interesting situation. At the same time, a man called Thomas Simonsson is appointed Bishop of Stringnes. He'll be Queen Philippa's Chancellor and a close friend, starting from around this time. This really is becoming an episode of local disputes, as farming and land reform comes into centre stage in small land and in the town of Skara too. 
The nobility there are getting fed up of farmers leaving to move into the growing cities and towns around Sweden, and so they're really feeling the pinch in these two areas. This is mainly because they're losing tax income. The, the farmers aren't going to be paying them any taxes if they move into a city and living elsewhere, and the farmers have been leaving due to the various crises that we've been seeing in the last couple of episodes. And it's really important to remember that the country and the region are still suffering massively from the effects of the Black Death. Even though it was a good 60 years previously, it will take centuries, really, for Sweden to recover to the point they were at before 1350 and when the Black Death arrived. It's just that factors are now combining and there's been decades of war and all that kind of stuff that's adding up and it's now meaning that the nobility are starting to take a major hit on their purses. So they just change local rules. They introduce the Vexfer Ordinance, which makes it much harder for these farmers to just move house. They put in loads of restrictions, so they basically say, do you want to move to this town? Nah, sorry, can't really. Sign these 455 forms, please, and uh, send them in yesterday. Yeah, it was an ordinance to ma- basically keep people from, from leaving the local area. I mean, it's harsh, but given the circumstances, perhaps to be expected. The king has a bit of time to focus on international affairs in 1415, as a ceasefire that had been negotiated with Holstein is due to come to an end. That means that new fortifications are built in the areas of Schleswig that Erik owns, and this costs money. So that means that a new war tax is levied, and not just in Denmark, but in Sweden and Norway as well. It doesn't seem like this causes too much immediate anger, but it is a tick in the negative column for Erik, who seems to have been doing a pretty decent job at appeasing people up until now. In the meantime, Erik manages to get the Holy Roman Emperor, who actually we haven't really mentioned but is his cousin, to confirm in writing that the previous peace treaty, which declared Erik the true owner of Schleswig, was actually correct and just and the proper way to end the dispute. Of course, Holstein doesn't care one jot about this piece of paper the Holy Roman Emperor writes, and so the war just begins again the next year. Like we mentioned previously, we're not going to cover this in detail, as it's a huge war that we could really talk about battles and battles. It's only really concerning Denmark in terms of policy, even though there are a great number of Swedes, as the sources say, that make up especially the navy that Erik sends to try and capture the German island of Fairman. Ulf Sundberg calls this a Kalmar Union army rather than uh, a Danish army, but it's definitely acting on behalf of Denmark at this point. It's one of these, you know, all for one, one for all, we'll help you out, even though it's not necessarily going to help Sweden, it's going to help Erik in his position as king of Denmark. So that's why the Swedes are getting involved. Erik then attacks Schleswig Town, uh, probably eager to try and capture the the football team that we've said uh, lives there. But uh, he has to abandon this when he's attacked by the Holsteiners. The Holsteiners then actually do something that probably had a load of leaders all around the Baltic doing a facepalm worthy of Captain Picard, and that's when they open their ports to the remnants of the Vitaly brother pirates. No! Don't let those guys back in the game... Picard facepalm indeed. 
This is an incredibly stupid idea. And of course, the Hansa are properly annoyed at this point. Something that annoys Erik is the fact that the Holsteiners then attack on Danish territory. And this is likely the first time that cannons are used in a siege on Nordic soil. Wow, that's a real milestone. I remember when we talked about the first time cavalry was used sort of back in 1000. I think that was when uh, Magnus I, who wasn't really king of Sweden, was uh, fighting around and doing loads of stuff. And yeah, the first cavalry battle. And now we've seen the first cannons. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a real milestone. Another long-lasting change, one that's still in effect to this day, is that Erik makes Copenhagen the first capital of the Nordics. He's taken inspiration from European cities like Paris, but perhaps most importantly from London. Not much of a surprise, seeing as that's where his wife is from. So Erik makes Copenhagen the permanent seat of a council office, or more like a government-style office, a regeringskansli in Swedish thereby sort of formalizing his status as capital. In this office, there's a special royal chancellor, a royal master, and a chamberlain who looks after all the finances. This doesn't really affect Sweden, though, as it's meant to be the Danish capital, and Stockholm isn't really the equivalent for Sweden yet, but it's the start of a trend to actually have proper capitals. Yeah, and it's important to note that this Copenhagen is not the capital of the Kalmar Union. This is, again, a very Danish-specific thing. This act does really annoy the Archbishop of Roskilde, though, because up until now, Roskilde has been the traditional seat of power in Denmark, and everybody needs to get Roskilde on the side. So the bishop there is used to actually being pretty much automatically the chancellor to the king, and so he's worried that this new Copenhagen coming up and about is going to take away power from Roskilde and we'll see eventually it absolutely does do that. Nobody has any time to be celebrating or moaning about this because the war in Holstein is continuing and Eric is spending most of his time dealing with this both in person and uh, when he's elsewhere he's dealing with this war. One thing worthy of note is the fact that now the Teutonic Order is slowly falling apart, the war-hungry German nobility need something to do and someone to fight, so many of them sign up to fight for Holstein. One of those who do is, of course, Albert of Mecklenburg. Not the dead one, the one who used to be king of Sweden, of course not, but the fifth one, nephew and namesake of our old king of Sweden. I just love how Albert of Mecklenburg's just keep coming back in various forms. This one comes to Holstein with around 400 soldiers, which isn't a small number. I think it would have been much more impressive if the older Albert of Mecklenburg, the dead one, turned up on the battlefield. You just uh, dig up his corpse and put a sort of a skeleton warrior on a on a wagon. That would be much more scary if like the skeleton king. True, or if he just came back as a ghost. That's l- going to be less effective, maybe. Uh, uh, I don't you know. Never know. <laughs> ghost fighters. Anyway, Erich decides to try and fight these in a different manner. The actual enemies, not the ghosts. He decides to mainly fight the Germans at sea. He sails around the ocean, pretending to land in lots of different places, forcing the Germans to spread their forces thin on the ground, as they don't know where Erich will properly attack. 
That's because the border between Holstein and Germany, if you look at a map, we're at the, the south end of modern-day Denmark, so there's not really much space. If you were just going to attack on land, there's only one direction you're coming from. But yeah, going to sea, you could essentially land pretty much anywhere in Holstein, so that's what Eric's trying to do. And he's sailing around for so long, like, pretending to land in all these places and never actually really attacking, that he gets a hilarious nickname, the Beaver. <laughs> and that's because beavers are an animal that don't want to leave the water and so that's what the Holsteiners call him but finally he does decide to attack one day and he goes to Schleswig town which is defended by Albert of Mecklenburg this is just amazing it's one of those really crazy things that ends up happening in history it's Albert's nephew fighting Margareta's adopted son so it's really round two of this big <laughs> historical beef that's been going on for decades at this point Although it really isn't round two, I guess, as the town surrenders after just three days. And the reason why they do this is because Albert, Duke of Mecklenburg, is sort of given a get-out-of-jail-free card. They agree that he can leave the town with 50 of his fellow German noblemen if they just promise to go home and never fight for Holstein again. And uh, they accept these terms and ride off into the night. And it, it seems like they accepted and held up their part of the bargain. We don't see him appear in the story again at least in this part of the story there's another peace treaty and this time the two sides fall back on a classic compromise the hands are called in and they get to look after Schleswig town and a fort the germans had captured as collateral to ensure the peace treaty is obeyed However, when the ceasefire begins, Erik sends his whole army home, and for some reason, the Swedes in the army get really angry. Maybe they were expecting to win a lot of war booty or something, because they burn down a German town on their way home. This is really bad, and it leads to a big argument about, oh, you're breaking the peace treaty, and the Swedes argue, well, it wasn't really a war, it was more just, like, rioting and looting. Is that war? Uh, good question. Eric isn't really overly pleased at having to hand over Schleswig Town to the Hansa. This town had begun to embody the whole war for him. He, he described the place as an inheritance from his mother with the words... Datsina Mulder Erva Vera, whatever that means. <laughs> well, it's it's old Danish, meaning that from his mother inherited were. Yeah, well, there you go, thank you. He promised to himself from this point on that he would now never compromise on the major war goal he'd set for himself. Schleswig Town and Schleswig as a whole would from now on never be officially surrendered. It was going to be the foundation of the entire Danish kingdom he'd inherited from Margareta and was therefore his duty to ensure the entire territory came back into his hands. There would be no official peace treaty signed that would give away his right to these lands. He did have time to have a bit of a think, though, as the truce with Holstein keeps getting extended after the negotiations fail, mainly because Eric isn't going to agree to any of the terms that the Holstein has come up with. And this is postponed in 1418 and then again in 1419. <laughs> Annoyingly, massively annoyingly, 1419 is also the date of a fire in Stockholm which destroys many records in the Old Town Archive, which is such a shame when you're a history podcaster some 500, 600 years later. They definitely needed to invest in more fire extinguishers. 
One cool thing that happens in 1419, though, and that is in May, when the Pope approves plans for a university to be built in Lund. Eric wants a proper teaching establishment set up somewhere to train his staff for his administration and uh, teach some clergy too. Because at the moment they're always going to Paris or Prague or wherever really, but he wants to create his own centre of learning in the Kalmar Union. But for some reason, uh, nobody really knows why, it doesn't actually happen. The university isn't founded until 1666, so they've taken 250 years to get around to do it. But a few years after the Pope did approve these initial plans for the university, there's a school of higher learning founded in Lund in 1425. Um, not entirely sure what the difference is there, but hey-ho. I think from what I read, the School of Higher Learning, you could only do like the equivalent of a bachelor degree. But at a university, you could go on and, you know, do research and become a doctorate and so on and so forth. Did they have doctorates in the 1400s? I'm, d don't question me too much on like how academia has developed <laughs> since the Middle Ages. But that's how I understood the difference between a proper university and this school of higher learning. Now we only have a little bit of time left in this episode, and so we thought we would cover something a little bit more personal as we enter into 1420. Now, the time's actually been going forward relatively quickly at this point, and we've actually reached 14 years since the marriage of Philippa and Eric happened. Even though Philippa was really young at the start, so uh, it took a, a few years for them to be reach a proper age, but they've been married for 14 years now. You've probably realised that we haven't mentioned any anything at all about children, and that's because there aren't any, or at least not yet. Eric is now 38 or so, and there are still none of those important heirs running around Copenhagen Castle. This is naturally a problem for any monarch at this point to not have any heirs, and he's starting to think of what might happen if he dies without one. That would be such a major disaster for such a stable kingdom that Margareta had constructed and after all the hard work of her father, King Valdemar. And so to prevent this, in case he and Philippa don't have any children, which they maybe still might have because Philippa is still only in her late 20s, but anyhow, to prevent this, Eric names his nine-year-old cousin, the Duke of Pomerania, as his heir. Always good to have a backup plan, even though at this point the backup plan is nine. The young child uh, had only just inherited this title of Duke of Pomerania from Eric's uncle and had nothing to do with political life in Sweden, really. He was also called Bugislav, uh, Erik's birth name before Margareta nordified him with the name Erik. Erik hasn't consulted anyone, uh, no other political figures in the realm, and especially not the Swedish council. He probably hasn't because he knows they wouldn't have accepted it, and rightly so. Sweden is, after all, an elected monarchy, so by coming out and boldly saying that this person is going to be king after you is not only illegal, but also stupid. You can't just bring in some nine-year-old from Pomerania and tell the Swedish council that they're the next king. 
Yeah, of course. You're going, listeners are thinking, but that's what everybody does. <laughs> and uh, it's true. The throne has passed on to Sun so many times in the past that we can't really count. But this wasn't always the case, and it certainly wasn't automatic, and they didn't parade around their children saying that they're going to be the king after them. Uh, it's much more subtle than that. So it really seems like after a bright start, Eric's now starting to make some very basic mistakes. Maybe he made this mistake as he spent so much of his time outside of Sweden at this point, and even outside of Denmark, because he's been fighting almost his entire reign. He's been sailing around on the sea, not coming to land. So especially percentage-wise, if you count his reign as starting when uh, Margareta dies. Yeah, I mean, he's not known as the beaver for nothing. He's uh, busy at sea. We really don't know much about the relationship between the king and queen, nor why they don't have any children at this point. But nonetheless, Eric not only seems to be on his wife's side, apart from when he's having fun with nuns, or would-be nuns, but he actively goes to great lengths to give her financial and political support and even independence. It is at this point when Philippa is given what can only be described as an enormous amount of land to administer, known as dower lands. These are normally given at the time of the wedding, and Philippa did get land in Denmark and Norway then, but now, in 1420, she is given a vast amount of land in Sweden. Yeah, it's sort of like a IOU has finally been claimed by Philippa, and it's a huge amount of land. This includes Nerke, Stockholm, Arboga, Sherping, Enschöping, and Vesteros with its castles and farms, plus iron ore fields and loads of towns and castles. Now, this is actually built up over the last couple of years. It isn't done in one go, but by the time we get to 1420, it's all confirmed and there's plenty of letters between the crown and the nobility who have to promise to accept this arrangement. One of the big ones was a document signed by Eric, a bishop, seven knights and Philippa herself. It's really hard to overstate the how huge this amount of land was. In fact, no Swedish queen before or after Philippa will have such a large area to manage as her own personal land. She would administer these lands and receive the income herself and manage everything like the trade that happened in these locations. The land we mentioned meant that she essentially controlled the entire Swedish iron ore trade and most of the important ports. What's more important is that Philippa would keep these lands for herself if Eric was to die first. They aren't just going to be inherited to, by the next monarch or this Bogoslav if Eric dies now. Normally we've seen queens getting a castle here or an estate there and maybe some farms or maybe a mini town, but Philippa's getting county after county and Stockholm too. This is brilliant, and as we will see, Philippa is seen in a very positive light by the Swedish nobility, in comparison to the king himself, and is seen to do a good job managing these lands. After all, this was a specific part of her education in the English court, so she must have studied hard and had an aptitude for this type of work. Eric recognises this too, and in 1420, a previous document mentioning he wants Bogislav to be his heir is amended. 
This time he adds in that he explicitly wants Philippa to be given an active role in the event of his death. The revised act states that upon the death of Eric, Queen Philippa should be appointed regent of the realm until Bogislav could be instated as king. And should Bogislav inherit the three kingdoms while still a minor, Philippa would serve as regent during his minority. This is a really big deal and really interesting. It's a fascinating look into Eric and Philippa's relationship, and we will see much more of that next time. It's really interesting how much Eric trusts Philippa. We've seen how many countless times in just, for example, English history where kings get really annoyed when their queens don't give them an heir really soon after two years and then they're divorced, killed, or had an accident. And the fact that Eric really trusts Philippa is really fascinating. In the meantime, whilst all these documents are being signed and Philippa's getting used to her new lands, Eric sails once again to Holstein and attacks the Germans once again. Uh, this is because they've attacked themselves and the Vitaly pirates are back on the seas. Both sides are really eager to keep striking until they get a killing blow. This time, Eric orders soldiers from Finland to join him, and processions are to be made in all three kingdoms to wish him luck and bring good luck, which is, uh, it clearly didn't work, though. Unfortunately, and we are summarising this massive mess of a war quite quickly here, it basically doesn't go well. He manages to capture the island of Fairman, and the two sides agree yet another peace treaty after this. The Germans once again don't want the Holy Roman Empire to get involved, even though the Hansa are pushing for Eric to try and settle the matter with his cousin. This doesn't work, and the Hansa start getting really tired with Eric. It just seems like he really doesn't want peace. He keeps breaking ceasefires and attacking the Germans, and won't accept any compromise that anyone comes up with. He's just being really stubborn. Yeah, well, he did say a few years ago that he was determined to get Schleswig back. Unfortunately, all this fighting is counterproductive. Remember Schleswig Town and its football team? Well, the Hansa was still holding it to ensure the peace treaties were upheld, and, well, now they are really fed up, and so they just give it to Holstein. Instead of trying to solve the situation at a meeting later in 1421, the Hansa just cancel all trade with the Kalmar Union. Eric must have said something really bad for this to happen. You know, he's just constantly stopping these peace treaties, so it's, it's no wonder the Hansa are annoyed. Where is that just and thoughtful king from half an hour ago gone? This is really strange here. And with that complete change in fortunes for Eric, and with the Hansa getting once again involved and really annoyed with uh, Scandinavian monarch, we'll leave the story there for today. We've seen Eric go from a contemplative, fresh king eager to make friends with the nobility and peasantry alike, to a war-hungry, aggressive and reckless despot. The one saving grace is that he really trusts and supports his Queen Philippa, who by the time we've reached 1421 is essentially ruling Sweden now, as she's spending pretty much all of her time there, has all of these lands, the nobility like her, and her husband is away and never there, so it makes sense, I guess. We'll see much more about how she manages Sweden and uh, gets herself involved in the political life of the Kalmar Union in the next episode, which I'm really looking forward to. Yes, and in the meantime, before we go, we've received a great email from Roger in Nevada. 
Yes, Roger's using the podcast to try and regain some of his lost command of the Swedish language. Uh, his words, not mine. And yeah, like also said, he's listening from Nevada, where he's a geologist and listens at work in the core shed. And he says he's looking forward to catching up with history related to mining and perhaps the Fala Gruven in particular. And uh, we did do an episode. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, if you're listening to them in order, Roger, you would have listened to the episode about the Great Copper Mountain Mine. So hopefully you enjoyed that and uh, yeah we even mentioned mining a little bit in this episode so uh, there will be more mining content and geology to come in the future absolutely yeah thank you so much for getting in touch Roger Uh, speaking of getting in touch let us know what you thought of Tangent Time it was great fun talking about the Battle of Grunwald and really helped us get into the minds of those fighting against the Teutonic Knights it really was indeed Uh, you don't have to talk about that though if you get in touch you can get in touch for any reason you can find us on facebook and twitter just search a flatpack history of sweden or email us at flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or even check us out on our website www.aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com and that's where we have all our sources, family trees, which we really need to update by this point actually um, a list of the swedish phrases we've covered and much more yeah So until next time, take care. Hey, Dale. Bye-bye.